Good afternoon and welcome. My name is Stephanie Gao and I will be uh, the moderator for this panel. Um, the first thing I'm going to go ahead and do is introduce everyone. Um, so actually I can't tell where they are, but I was going to say underneath me is Adam Gutton. He's the Financial and Professional Alliance Claims Manager for STAR Adjustment Services. It's a member of the STAR companies. Prior to his time at STAR, Adam was a partner in the Boston law firm of Mel Melick and Porter, where he concentrated in areas of insurance, coverage, and the defense of insureds and large, large self-insureds in employment litigation. Adam received his BA from the Boston University and his JD from the New England School of Law in Boston. Everyone, welcome, Adam. <laughs> Hi, nice to be here. Thank you, Stephanie. Uh, the next uh, panelist is Kathleen, uh, who is very um, well qualified, has a lot of education. Uh, she's a, she is a 1977 grad from the Northeastern University with a Bachelor of Science in Nursing and a 1988 graduate of New England Law Boston. Since 1982, she has worked for Convoy's previously pro-mutual group in the claims department, rising to her current position as senior claims specialist. Kathy has also been a trustee at New England Law Boston since 1992. Uh, the final panelist is Nate, who is a partner at Kenny and Sam's PC, where he represents businesses, including general contractors, subcontractors, developers, and insurance professionals. Nate has tried cases throughout Massachusetts and successfully mediated dozens of matters throughout New England. He is on the board of the Massachusetts Defense Lawyers Association and chair of programs and projects for the International Association of Defense Council's Construction Law Committee. Um, I am a partner, just to have some background, I'm a partner at Peabody and Arnold. I do professional liability coverage and monitoring work. Um, and so we organized this panel in originally uh, envisioning at the beginning of this year of providing new attorneys and recent student graduates information about um, how to handle kind of a third party in your working relationship in terms of information and strategy. Now that we're in a kind of a you know, COVID situation, we're hoping that this can also be a good mentoring and learning situation for new attorneys who are stuck at home, don't have, you know, a whole office to be able to ask all their minute questions. So we definitely encourage all of you to um, put any sort of question that you have in the Q&A section. We'll either try and answer them all at the end or throughout the panel. Um, so just to begin, I think our idea was to provide kind of a context and structure of what the insurance industry is, who this third party is in the relationship and how you need to coordinate with them. Um, and, you know, just to make sure we provide really basic understanding, I think most people understand what insurance companies do, but they are, insurance companies basically allocate risk. They take the premiums from um, everyone in the community that decides they want to buy insurance and then uses that pool of money to pay out for any sort of claims or risks or issues that arise. Um, what I will say is that they also take that money and sometimes try and generate more money with it. 
And so in some ways, insurance industries and insurance companies are similar to banks in that they handle a lot of money, but they're dissimilar to banks in that you can't access money whenever you want because it's not a bank account. But I think that's the one thing that we have to make very clear. So the, the only way to really access the money is to trigger certain things under the policy or the contract. And because there's so much money involved, there's a lot of oversight, there's numerous levels of approval, auditors, and reinsurance. And reinsurance could be a whole nother panel, but it's suffice to say that it's insurance companies insuring other insurance companies. So part of kind of where we want to center everyone is to make sure that you understand who your audience is when you're talking to a claims adjuster or their boss or their boss's boss, right? Most of these people, and you'll see, you know, based on Adam and Kathy's background, most of the claims people, they already have a JD. They already know a lot about the law, the legalese, all that sort of stuff. Really more, it's preparing them with the information that they need to be able to advocate up the chain to make sure that they can help you succeed in your claim. So I think the first kind of category that we're going to deal with is um, Kathy and I are going to address information carriers need and why. And then Nate and Adam are going to address kind of real-time information and consent issues. So why don't I hand it over to Kathy and she can start with the information carriers need. Okay, thanks, thanks Stephanie. And feel free, uh, any of the other panelists to jump in at any time. Um, so the first thing we're going to talk about is reporting. Um, reporting is extremely important to the insurance company. Most of the insurance companies have standard reporting requirements for attorneys, and some of them are templated, like a 30-day report or a pre-trial report, but each company has a different structure of templated reporting that the defense attorneys need to do. Um, most require different companies, most require similar information on those reports between the different companies, you know, liability, damages, um, information regarding discovery that has taken place by the lawyers. And those things not only to be need to be reported, but they need to be reported timely because when you work at an insurance company, we, we as insurance adjusters get audited on your work and your reports that need to be in the file. So the other day I looked at a report or looked at a file and realized that the defense attorney who was an associate failed to respond to a 93A claim for, for um, a demand for settlement that has a 30 day window to be answered in and it was now 90 days. So of course, I think about the associate and say, hmm, he either doesn't have it on his diary or something went wrong that his report to me within that time frame was not timely. And I was lucky because I had a diary system that caught the error before it progressed more months. We then had a conversation about what had happened, why, actually, I could have done this yesterday with him um, and you guys, because I said, these are the things that you have to be done because the, the file reflects my lack of 
knowing it was not done within 30 days. And more importantly for, for you in the audience is, I now look at this defense attorney differently because he failed to report in a timely manner. So I know, one, I have to watch him, and two, do I really want to have him on my cases going forward if he's not going to provide the reports that need to be re reported on? So that's significant for you guys because you need to form um, a relationship with some of these claims people so that you will get work and as you move up on the food chain in your law firm, they're going to want to have you work on their cases because not only are you timely, but you give them the appropriate information in order for them to make an evaluation of their case. So we all have reporting requirements for our files to be complete. Um, they address not only um, the status of the file, meaning where the file is in the discovery process, but they also need to provide us with um, information that you will give us during the discovery process regarding your legal analysis as to what's going on. So if you go to a deposition, you can write about the deposition, but in the last paragraph or somewhere in the body of that letter to the claims person, you need to make a legal analysis of the discovery that you have been participating in. And that is huge because anybody can read a medical record, go to a deposition and give the objective facts, but what the company is paying you for and what the adjusters want from you is how you think that piece of discovery fits in the whole, in the case as a whole. And where do we want to go from here? Do we want to take the deposition of someone else? Do we want to get medical records that, that have been discovered during this deposition? So it helps track the file to the conclusion. And your legal analysis is very important. Can I jump in with just- um, Absolutely. So I think stepping back from just a second, it's really important. Those of you that are right out of school and trying to figure out even the tripartite relationship, your client is the person that owns the trucking company or the homeowner or the business owner that's an insured of the insurance company. The partner is the client as well. And we sort of have this approach at our firm of the client is internal. That is the associate is reporting to the, to the partner and should try and have good client services with that partner. The partner's client is then the insurance company, the business relationship that sends the work to the firm. And then when it comes to the ethical responsibilities and who you're, uh, who you're representing in terms of your appearance and as an attorney, you're representing a client in a traditional sense, the way that we learn about in law school, the person that's been sued, uh, whether it's defendant or the plaintiff. But all of this is really helpful to think about in terms of, you know, what is this other relationship with the insurance adjuster and how are you going to help them look good to their boss? How are you going to help them stay informed and understand what's going on with their case. Um, and I think what Stephanie and what Kathy alluded to is this idea that they, the insurance companies get audited. So they have certain metrics that they're going to get graded on and your job is to make them look good by timely reporting consistent with the guidelines. And Kathy also mentioned referring to the report as it, what many, many insurance companies will call it a strategy or a status report. We try to look at it more as a, as a strategy report. It's not just here's a book report on what's going on. Uh, you're, you're not just reporting like you're working for a newspaper. You're saying, here's why these things are important. 
here's how this evidence as it came in is going to impact the damages of the liability. And then you're timely saying to the adjuster, here's what we're going to do next, whether it's good news or bad news. I mean, I think frankly, there's what we fear are surprises or unknowns. Um, if something bad happens in a deposition, you want to say, this has changed the, the evaluation of liability or damages, and here's why. Uh, so don't be afraid of reporting on bad news, and don't be afraid um, or feel as though you have to uh, tilt everything favorably for your client. This is an opportunity to be objective and to carefully, and we'll talk a little bit about how you want to specifically deal with some of the touchier issues here, but it's an opportunity for you to objectively evaluate your take on the case, on the liability and on the damages, and say to the adjuster, here's what's going on with the case, here's how it's coming in good or bad or somewhere in the middle, here are what the numbers look like and how strongly we think these damages uh, will likely present to a jury. And then we end our, our status reports with, here's essentially our action items, our to-do list. And it's a good way to make all of you accountable to yourselves, to the partner, to the adjuster, that we have to go do these things and we're gonna go lift up these rocks and look underneath them and here's how we're going to answer all the questions that we don't yet have answers to. And so you're thinking of it as a way of collaborating with the adjuster, keeping them informed in real time. Uh, and I think that's important. Kathy and I, uh, before today, when we were speaking offline in the group, we were saying that you know, we like to, to take the approach of if, if an adjuster, frankly, a partner, is asking you for something, it's already too late. You've, you've missed the opportunity to get ahead of them because they're asking because someone is asking them. And that's how you have to look at it. So look at your deadlines and use technology, use your assistance, use post-its if, if you don't have a better system than that to make sure that you are on top of these reporting guidelines consistent with, uh, with, with the respective insurance companies so that you're ahead of that. And that also gives time for the adjusters to reach out and say, hey, you know, I saw this in the report and you said this issue is important and I'm a little bit unclear as to why or what you're gonna do about it. And again, it just gives you time so you're collaborating and you learn a lot from from adjusters who have seen thousands of cases, way more than you're gonna see at this stage of your career. So those are just some overall points, but I just wanted to make sure that everyone's understanding that you've got a client that you've got to zealously represent in court, and then you've got this person who pays the pills, who you have to make uh, you know, you know, happy, but not by only sharing good news, it's just the opposite, by, by keeping them from being surprised by things that you never told them about. And if I could just, I just wanted to expand on one thing you said, Kathy, which is really and, and very key, is that, um, you know, when you get assigned by an insurance company to defend a case as a new lawyer in a firm or if you're by yourself, whatever it may be, Kathy had mentioned all insurance companies have these billing and reporting guidelines. They're similar between companies, but they do differ a little bit. And the first thing you want to do when you get your assignment is if, you, if you're not familiar with those billing guidelines, reporting guidelines, ask the senior partner, whoever it is in the office, ask the adjuster, which is we all have them, and, and, and read them. Um, because there's key things in there that uh, you, know, you may, you may you wanna understand. And also reach out to the adjuster, because the adjuster, even though the guidelines are there, they are guidelines, the adjuster on a certain file may want to deviate from them in, in certain respects. For example, if, you have, if an adjuster has a class action lawsuit, like I do have a lot of those, okay? I may want reporting a little more often than the guidelines may suggest. Vice versa is I have a lot of cases, uh, I do, uh, my line is financial and professional lines. 
I have a lot of cases at administrative agencies that languish for, for, for many some months and sometimes years at those administrative agencies. I may talk to the attorney and say, I don't need a full-blown nine-page status, you know, assessment every 90 days when this has just been sitting in an agency. All you're really doing at that point is just, you know, incurring fees and costs. So use the guidelines as a guideline, but also it's, you know, key to have that relationship with the adjuster and talk about in each specific case as it goes on, you know, what would you like? Would you like 30 days? Would you like 60 days? Would you like 90 days as we go on? Adam and, and Kathy, is it, if there's nothing going on with the case, I like to let the adjuster know there's nothing going on with the case. And it, that quick little update shows them that you're thinking of them, show them a little love and just say, just, you know, keeping you posted, nothing's gone on in the last four weeks. Here's what's still on the docket or the calendar and what's upcoming. But the fact that nothing is happening doesn't mean you just walk away from the file. In fact, those are great opportunities I found to just keep people at ease and to start to build the level of trust and the relationship you have with an adjuster so that they know that you're paying attention to their files, that you're diligent. And so sometimes just that, that little paragraph or, or sentence at the end of the week on a Friday afternoon, quick little, you know, just wanted to give you an update. Here's where things are. Uh, you know, we're still working on scheduling a deposition so that they don't feel that nothing was happening. And you know, ultimately you're selling a product. And I think that um, what's hard when you come out of law school is that we're taught that we're sort of these issue spotters and we're professionals and you know, we're just somehow just being lawyers is, is enough. And it's a great profession, but we're, we're selling a product. And that product is our ability to analyze files, our ability to, uh, to advise to clients and insurance adjusters. And so you have to be thinking about, is this a, something that someone's going to want to pay for um, at the end of the day? Is it a good product for the end user? And, and the end user is not just the client you're representing in court. It is the, the insurance carrier. And so those little things, uh, the little details of, of good customer relationship is really what it is. It goes a long way. When you do make that mistake, and it'll happen, uh, you've got some trust built up, and you've got a reservoir of somebody that knows you're a good lawyer, knows you're diligent, and so some things are going to fall through the cracks. You want to keep that to a minimum. But those little things, the opportunities to have a dialogue and keep people informed so that if Adam's boss or Kathy's boss comes around and says, what's going on with that file? They can say, they bring up the file, they bring up their notes, and they say, you know what, I got an email last week from the attorney of record. They told me they're in the process of scheduling depositions and I'm going to hear the deposition dates from them. I expect it in the next 15 days. And that makes them look good to their, to their boss. And that's a big part of what you're doing. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to trip through a lot of this information real quickly because we got a lot to, a lot to do, but I quickly want to say Adam's comment regarding billing guidelines are important for you guys. Because what will happen is, is some of your partners will look at it and say you spent too much time on this and they'll cut that. You don't want any of your bills cut if you can at all help because that will help you move up within your firm. But anyway, back to the insurance company, we have to reserve our files. So that means taking some money and setting it aside for what we think the loss will pay out as, as to damages. So during or in the beginning, we have to put some amount of money aside with the insurance company. That can change either up or down over the lifetime of the file, and it's based on what happens with the discovery. So you may be asked, what do you think the settlement value of this is, or what do you think the verdict value is? We ask that so that we can reserve that amount of file. It doesn't have to be 100% right, and you will learn as you go along what values are. 
the key thing is if you think the value changes because of discovery, you need to let the rep know or the consultant know so that they can change their reserve. So when the file eventually gets settled or go to trial, that amount of money is set aside with the insurance company. The tripartite relationship is important because your first responsibility is to the insured, not to the insurer who pays the bills. So you also have to keep the insured up to date as to what's going on because you don't want them to be blindsided in the end that all of a sudden we're settling this case. Now you can not necessarily withhold, but not give them information that you found until after their deposition because you don't want to cloud their deposition. But at some point they need to know the full scope of the information that you have found during your discovery. Um, the other thing is, is you have to be careful in your documentation that you do not say that this case needs to be settled immediately because there's a thing called 93A in Massachusetts and anything that is, um, that, um, how, do, how do I put it, uh, needs to be settled, um, you need to use words like may or possibly because if that information says the case needs to be settled is in the documentation that triggers the insurer's responsibility to make an offer on the case. Have a discussion regarding it. Let the, let the insurance person write the information in their file. But like I said, once you write that, you kind of box us into taking something proactive that we may not have had to do later on. Um, Can you speak to why that's important in that Someday your file may be subpoenaed pursuant to a 93-176-D claim. Right, or a coverage litigation. So a lot of times we're with these reports, it's important to have a conversation with the claims handler first and make sure that they're aware of the situation and be like, hey, do you want a report? Do you want documentation of this in your file? Because later on, an auditor or another litigator is going to look through that file. So it's important to make the call first before you send something in writing. So in the claims and from our standpoint in the claims analysis, you guys also have to do a claims analysis because we have to determine coverage. Is there coverage for all of the counts that are brought in a, a complaint? And if there is not coverage, then the insurance company creates what's called a reservation of rights. You need to be aware that there's a reservation of rights on the case and you need to sort of understand the coverage a little because some of the policies are wasting policies, which mean your defense costs come off of the limits of liability versus non-wasting policies, the defense costs are kept separately. So you may think you have a million dollar policy that you're dealing with, but if you spent $200,000 in defense costs, you only have $800,000 left to work with. So just to have that in the back of your mind, the insurance company will provide you with copies of the declaration page, copies of the insurance policies. So if you're working with, let's say, State Farm, you sort of need to know what the State Farm policy says because you're going to be working with them frequently. And you, you yourself can figure out, are they going to cover defamation or are they not going to cover gross negligence? You know, and those are things from an attorney's perspective just to keep in the back of your mind because the claims reps will tell you this. Um, but there's, you should always have a copy of the policy just around so you can refer to it. 
Um, when we reserve our cases, we at the company I work for, reserve for liability, exposure, and damages. So those are the th three things we do, and it's hard to reserve, but those of us who've been doing it for a long time sort of pick it out of the air, but you kind of look at where did the person work? What are the economic and the non-economic damages? Put it all into like a ball, shake it up, and we put a reserve on it, which, as I said previously, can be changed. Yeah, um, go through some of the those three categories about what kind of makes up those categories and what you look at in particular, because I think a lot of times when we talk about liability or damages or exposure, it's just like you know, this big term, but I do think there are, we can kind of break it down a little more. So, so when I look at liability, I look at, um, I do medical malpractice. So we look at, did the person breach the standard of care and did that, care, did that breach directly cause the damages? So with any negligence case, you may have a breach, but there has to be that causation piece that resulted in the damages. So you really look at the two prongs. You look at the, the breach and you look at the causation. And then lastly, you look at the damages. I try a lot of cases and a lot of people try a lot of cases on lack of causation. And if you win in a court on lack of causation, you win overall. So that's an important piece in your analysis when you're providing it to the, the, the rep. Look at those things. Liability, the breach, the causation, and then the damages. There's many, many cases that the damages are there, but the other two prongs don't get met. And that's part of your legal analysis, and that's part of the jester's legal analysis for reserving and for making a decision as to whether to settle the case or not. And a lot of that information comes out through discovery. But if you keep those two things in the back of your mind in your analysis, will all be together. And you also want, as Nathan said, and, and Adam, we want to work as a team. This is a team to the resolution. You have the lawyer, the insured, and the claims person all marching along to a resolution, whether it be settlement or trial. And there should be discussions regarding that at some point during the file. You also have to be careful because some insurance policies have consent clauses where the insureds must sign as to whether or not you're going to settle the case or not. So that's, that's another important thing to, um, to look at. Um, let's see. Oh, the, the other thing insurance companies like to do is bring in other people. So when you're analyzing stuff, if there's another party who could have been liable, you want to bring that to the insurance company's point of view and uh, make a decision. Are you going to implead them into a case? Are you going to let them and their insurance carrier know they have exposure? Or are you going to use them as an empty chair? But insurance companies love to find money with another carrier somewhere else. Find out what their limits of liability are. Find out who is defending them. And find out what their position in the whole case is. And if you can work as a group to a resolution, great. If you can't, then you know ahead of time who you're dealing with as you go on in the case. Um, so that's all I have on liability, um, damages. We need object, as an insurance company, you need objective documentation of damages. You want medical bills paid by the, an insurance company and out of pockets paid by the, the plaintiff. Psychological damages, 
everybody has PTSD. You see it all the time. But when people say that there's psychological damage, the question becomes, did they go to a medical provider to evaluate their claims of pain and suffering and psychological damages? And if they did, you want that information because if they claim it in the complaint, you have the right to have that information, although you may have to get a judge to agree to have the subpoena because it's psychological damages. And that also goes for alcohol and drugs. That's, um, that's a great point that when once they open the door to allege those psychological damages, you have the right now to go back and grab the records from beforehand. So it's a tricky thing even when you're representing a plaintiff, whether you whether if you know your client has a history of, of uh, mental health issues that you don't necessarily want to be part of the case, you got to make the decision. So once they allege uh, PTSD and anything related to mental health, anxiety, then it opens up the door to get a lot of records that they may not want to get that you have to chase down. Uh, because what it may suggest is that these were pre-existing and maybe they're exacerbated in which they can be compensated for the exacerbation damages. But maybe what you're going to find is that these alleged mental health PTSD related damages that they're claiming are because of the incident in question were really something that were pre-existing and that they were treating. People will, will say things to their lawyer when they walk in the door, when they're hiring a plaintiff's lawyer, and they will try and tilt what their case looks like even to their lawyer. They don't tend to lie to their doctors before there's litigation. They will lie afterwards to try and build up the case. But you can find a lot of information in these records that are from prior to, prior to the incident or prior to the litigation. And so if they open the door for mental health records, you have to now chase those down. And it may take authorization to take, to, it may take uh, motions to compel but you have to be aware that now this is an issue with the case and it's so important to go find those. A um, couple of quick things. I'll, I'll zip along real quick, Stephanie, I promise. Liens, there's an automatic Medicare lien for anybody who receives or is eligible for Medicare. So you need to have documentation from the lien holder, not just take what the, 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 the plaintiff says. Budgets, um, lots of insurance companies have budgets. As Adam said, if you're going off the budget, just like you're going off the billing guidelines, there has to be a discussion because the carrier is responsible to stay within the budget because we need to make money. I mean, that's that's part of the whole thing. Um, lastly, the strategy and recommendations regarding early, um, early conclusion. We all want to move the cases along as quickly as we can because it's a money saver. Um, you want to make an offer on a case that liability is reasonably clear and you want to make a good faith offer. Um, and that's something that needs to be discussed with the insurance carrier. Whether the consultant or the lawyer does the settlement is really up to that particular insurance company. I negotiate and settle all of my cases. Um, some other companies don't. And now I'll let somebody else go. I'm muted. So we had a quick question from the audience from Francis um, about what the meaning of reservation of rights is. Kathy touched on it briefly when talking about policies and even though you are the insured's um, counsel, you need to be aware of the, the policy, how it interacts, what kind of coverage is being provided. And part of that is through a reservation of rights letter from the carrier. So a carrier, just like in an auto claim, when the claim comes in, the carrier looks over the complaint and the policy and determines whether or not there's coverage. If there's no coverage, they write a declination letter and that's usually the end of the story. In a case where there is 
a possibility of coverage, the insurance carrier will issue a letter saying, look, we think there's a possibility of coverage. These are the reservations. Here are the things that we think possibly could be excluded from coverage under the policy, but we are going to, and depending on the policy, it, this is getting a little in the leap, you know, they'll have a duty to defend or a non-duty non to defend. So the reservation of right is really just a way for insurance carriers to be saying, look, we're going to provide you coverage, but here are all the problems that could possibly come down the line. And it's a good letter to refer to to understand what is covered, what isn't covered, and how it will impact kind of what the damages are and who's going to you know pay for those damages whether it be the lien or you know the tort damages things like that so now i think we're going to pass it on to nate and adam to discuss kind of real-time information and consent which um kathy touched on in terms of settlement and other issues sure thank you i'm happy to start and um one of the things you know, if Kathy kind of touched on this, and it's, it's sort of a you know the broad theme here is, is that you know all insurance companies uh, I've never seen one that hasn't have panel counsel lists, and you know firm you may work for you know if you're, you're by yourself and, and you make efforts to get on those lists, um, you know they they have panel firms that have negotiated rates uh, with those firms. And, you know, the insurance carrier, now there are some exceptions when they have to go off panel. There are, depending on the nature of litigation or what it might be, but most firms, um, you know, have, want to stick to the panel list. And the reasons for that is the negotiated rates. To expand on what Kathy said is the, the reporting and billing guidelines. We know using these firms on our panel that, you know, you know what you're familiar with our reporting and billing guidelines. You know what we're looking for. You also have the, the expertise in the subject matter that we're, we're insuring. Uh, and so we have those, those firms that we retain. So you've been retained, we, we start with that. And you're going along in your, your, your matter and all of a sudden, you know, you need an expert. Kathy talked about, you know, medical PTSD. I do employment uh, practice liability claims and they always involve emotional distress. Okay, there's always emotional distress from being terminated, from being sexually harassed, from being discriminated against. It's universal. And so uh, one of the things you, you find out is that the plaintiff has retained an expert to testify as to the, the plaintiff's emotional distress. So you, you know, feel as the attorney, you need an expert as well. Well, this is something, touch on something we've been discussing, you have to discuss upfront right away with the claims adjuster, okay? Uh, I, just to give you an example, war story, whatever you call it, I had a claim about a year ago, and it was not a panel firm, you know, it was one of those cases where I had to go off panel, and that's a, that's a subject for another webinar, you know, when you go off panel. And this claimant was briefly, uh, had been fired from a job, and had been treating for emotional distress with a licensed social worker, and had gone to the social worker maybe two or three times. Well, the defense counsel wanted, literally submitted a proposal to me to hire New York City, one of New York City's top psychiatrists, MD, Cornell Medical School, everything to, you know, to rebut this social workers, uh, you know, what they were going to testify to. And it was, you know, the bill was going to be, actually, I was going to be thirty, forty thousand dollars to do that. It was overkill. And, you know, they come, luckily they come to me by the guidelines and, it was overkill for the case. 
luckily have come to me and said, can I retain this expert? And my answer was no, we don't need an expert of that magnitude in this case, okay? We, we need maybe a psychologist, maybe another social worker to kind of do this. So uh, you have to remember you are spending insurance company dollars, okay? Even though your client is the insured, you are spending insurance company dollars and you do need the adjuster's consent to retain an expert, to retain a vendor. It's not only limited to experts. Um, electronic discovery is big these days. You need, to, you, you need to retain somebody to do all the document recovery. You want to retain an investigator. If it's a workers' comp claim, you feel that you know, the claimant perhaps is, is being less than truthful. They're, you know, they're out playing tennis or whatever it is when they claim they've been hurt you want to retain an investigator, you need to get the adjuster's approval and consent for all of that. It's not, the adjuster does not like a surprise. Very few adjusters, I've never met an adjuster who loves a surprise, I will tell you that. What you don't want is to say, oh, well, you know, we've been trailing the claimant for the last two weeks, and you know what? Claims he was hurt, but he's playing tennis, he's ice skating, he's doing this, and we have all this great stuff, and I say, yeah, but now who's paying for it? We're paying for it, and you didn't get consent. A lot of times the carriers have vendor lists, okay? We have experts we've used before, we've been in the business, of, we have private investigators we've used before that have rates with us. It's fine to have those things, but you wanna obtain our consent first because we may be able to get you somebody on our list. We don't wanna hear, well, we did this and now it's done and we're faced with having to pay this invoice and you didn't really have consent and we also have to explain this in a file of why did we have to do that. And Adam, doesn't this go, and, and Kathy and Stephanie, to this idea of collaboration, that it's the surprise that's a problem. If you're, if you're collaborating and you're updating the reporting in real time, and you're advocating for your client, which is what your job is to do, and the, the adjusters get that. They're not saying to you, don't go fight for the client. They know you have to do that. But they, they don't want surprises, and they want to understand uh, the cost benefit of each of these decisions. And so you're giving people an opportunity to say, I, I really want to push for an investigator. Okay, maybe the discussion is about how many days. Maybe what day of the week do you have the investigator go out? Because you're trying to do this efficiently and still do the best you can do. So, you know, it's a, it's a business. It's the reality of being an associate that you have to understand that somebody's paying for this and that's part of your job is to make sure they feel like they're getting a good product and they feel like they, they're being informed in real time. So I think so much of it is if, if Adam or, or Kathy hear from an associate, Here's what we need. We want to push for this. Here's why we think it's in the best interest of the client, not just in a theoretical sense, but here's how it's going to help save money because it's going to really strengthen the defense or help us really hammer away at the damages. This is what I think would work. They've had a lot of experience. They can say, well, let's try, first of all, this person's on a vendor list so they get a better rate. And let's think about starting with two days of an investigation instead of just sending the person to go trail them for two weeks. So you know, it's, it's obviously you should be having these discussions internally as well with a partner, but it's opportunity to really hear from folks that are, that are, have, have years of experience and different perspectives. And ultimately, you know, they do have the ability to control the defense. The insurance company's paying for it. Um, and so you want to work with them and then they can say, let's do this. You can do a great job for your client without sacrificing anything for them and still satisfy all of these guidelines. But the key is you just really have to have to keep people informed. And I just wanted to touch on one thing, the question on the reservation of rights, um, to be careful. The reservation of rights is the insurance company hedging when it comes to coverage. They're saying, we think there's coverage on some of these things, but we think we have some arguments that they're not covered. And so under Massachusetts, when they issue a reservation of rights, they can either 
Now, there's a couple things that can happen, but essentially when that reservation of rights letter comes out, if you're an insurance defense attorney, I don't think you want to go anywhere near the, the questions of coverage and what's covered and what's not covered that your client, the actual uh, defendant, it may pose to you. Because you're going to just say, look, I've been assigned to represent you on these claims. You separately have an issue with your insurance company about coverage. I can't weigh in on that because you start to walk into an area of a conflict of interest. And that's what you have to be very careful of. So if someone's ever asking you coverage questions, you need to go to the partner. You need to not, don't, I would, this is one of those pick up your fingers off the keyboard moments. Say, I can't advise on coverage. They may have to go get a lawyer who separately pushes back against the insurance company and advocates for a different position on coverage. So you just want to be mindful of that. That's a landmine type of situation. But I think the best approach is to say, I can't do that. I'm here to fight for you on this case. You need to go talk to another lawyer. So I, I just wanted to touch on that because the reservation of rights situation um, and my firm, we represent a lot of private um, companies that, and sometimes we're defending pursuant to a reservation of rights. Another quirky thing is when insurance companies issue a reservation of rights under Massachusetts law, the, the, the insured can demand that their private counsel continue to represent them. And that's a whole different issue. So you just need to be aware that there are all these things with coverage out there that you may not be familiar with and may not be hired to, to deal with. So don't go near them and just say, I can't, I can't weigh in on that. Um, but with regard to the retention of experts, I think that's true whether you're, you're dealing with an insurance company, a private company, whatever it is, you've got to be discussing with the client, with the adjuster, why you think you need this. And the client may, the actual client may have great input on the best way to get something. But again, you see somebody retaining an expert, pick up the phone and have a conversation with the adjuster about how you fight back. Okay, so we, we have about 15 minutes left. So I'll, uh, as Kathy had to I'll run through some of these other topics um, and anybody chime in. Uh, and of course, if there's any questions, send them along. But um, so as you're going along in your case, depending on the type of case that it is, they're usually in, in litigation today, you know, you, you'll come to realize very few cases today get tried. Okay, it's a very small number. We do have them, but it's a, it's a smaller number. Um, you know, there, there's usually an opportunity for a settlement dialogue, a mediation, uh, some courts, uh, depending on you know where you're practicing, or some judges may may mandate that you attend a mediation or at least a settlement conference with a magistrate, especially if you're in federal court. Uh, federal courts are big on that. So, um, you know, if you have you been updating your adjuster all along, you know, and you get to a point, you know, this is not a surprise to the insurance company or the adjuster that this is going to happen, um, or that a private mediation may occur. You want to make sure the adjuster has all their information well in advance of a mediation or a settlement conference, including the date. Okay. Um, you know, these things, judges don't say, I've never experienced a judge say, okay, today is Wednesday, I'm sorry, Thursday, June 11th, we're having a settlement conference tomorrow. They usually give a few weeks time, a few months time. Of course, if it's a private mediation, you're scheduling that on your own calendar. Please make sure that the adjuster, the, you know, the claims rep is notified well in advance of that mediation date. Because as Kathy, Kathy's, you know, when she was talking, all that information you're giving, we need time to have that digested. We need time to make sure the reserves are correct in advance of that mediation. And at every insurance company, you know, I've ever worked with or worked for, 
Um, you know, every adjuster or individual has different levels of a settlement authority. I have a certain level, my boss has a certain level, and her boss has a certain level, and then the vice president of the claims department usually has a certain level before it even go, needs to go beyond that. So if we're looking at possibly resolving a case above my authority, above my boss's authority, and, and you don't know those authorities, that's for us to know, but we need the information, then I need time to bring that to upper management. I can't have, or no adjuster can have, you know, you know, we're going to mediation in a couple of weeks. And by the way, I think we need $2 million to resolve this case or a million dollars to resolve this case. And now I'm looking at, oh, I've got to go above my authority. Maybe it's worth it. Did I have all this information? Why is this coming now? So the sooner the better when it comes to mediation dates and settlement conferences. Now I do understand, and I'm sure Kathy or any adjuster will understand, there are times you will get a phone call from the plaintiff's attorney who will call you up in the case and say, you know what, circumstances have changed on my end, my client needs my, I, we can settle this between you, you know, you and me tomorrow for a small amount. We don't need a mediator. My client's willing to compromise. It's this. I understand those times happen. And, you know, I appreciate those phone calls from the defense counsel to say, you know, look, Adam, we can get out of this tomorrow in short order for a very small amount of money. You know, in, in an ideal world, I'll have everything I need and my reserve will be posted. Sometimes, you, you know, you have to work with it. And if you've been keeping us updated all along and we have that liability and damages analysis, we're ready for that phone call, okay? I'm ready for it. Um, it's, it's more so when, you know, we don't have that information, which goes back to key reporting, that I'm not ready for as much as a phone call and we have to kind of scramble if we can, if we can do it. So settlement offers an agreement, settlement offers, demands always should be forwarded, you know, immediately to the adjuster. So we know those things and we have those things and we're ready. That ties into our, our reserving. Um, and when it comes to mediation, um, I know that all adjusters have different approaches in terms of appearing in person or not. Uh, and I don't know what your particular preferences are. I imagine they change depending on the case and whether you need to be there to evaluate the other side or their presentation. But could you speak to when you want to be there in person and when not and how important it is? I mean, I, I know another issue is if your adjuster is not going to be there in person, I've found um, that I think you've got to discuss it with the mediator and you've got to discuss it with the other side because uh, you may want to strategically have a mediator who's not there, in per uh, an adjuster who's not there in person. Um, I think it sends a certain message that, look, if this is a, if we think this is a $40,000 case, we're not flying somebody up for this, you, you know, that, and, and it sends that right. message. You could conversely send the wrong message, which is we're not prepared, we don't understand the case, and we're not serious about settling it. So I'd be interested from the adjuster's perspective how important it is to have a discussion about whether you're going to be there in person and how much of that you want to share with the other side of the mediator. Sure. Well, and, and Kathy can also chime in on this or anybody, but I know from my perspective, um, some, sometimes your hands are tied. The, the federal courts, and am I a lot of my cases in federal court, the federal magistrates usually mandate that the insurance adjuster be at the settlement conference or the mediation, unless permission is received from the magistrate to not attend or to attend by phone. So, and, and this is a very good thing you, you bring up, Nathan. If there is permission, if a specific magistrate or judge, if you're doing a court-ordered mediation, 
requires the adjuster to be there. Please tell the adjuster that, especially if it's in a different state and we have to make prearranged travel arrangements. Please tell them that, or please tell us the availability if we feel I shouldn't attend on how to be excused from it. Um, you, the one thing we don't want is for you to walk into the court that day and the magistrate says, well, where's the adjuster? You know, and you're like, well, I thought they could attend by phone. And the judge says, well, you didn't get permission for me to do that. The other side's upset, the magistrate's upset. And now everything is, is falling apart right there on mediation day. A lot of magistrates will have a carve out and say, if you file a motion, if the other side agrees, I'll allow them to attend by phone. Talk about that with your judge. Your adjuster may want to go, depending on the size of the case, it may not be an issue, but um, uh, you want to talk about that. If it's a private mediation, you, you, know, you have a lot more flexibility because the private mediator cannot mandate that the insurance adjuster be there. The only thing I caution about that is that, you know, with all these, with federal rule, under the federal rules, you have to disclose insurance. So it's odds are if you're in federal court, the other side knows about it. Some state rules, you don't. Uh, what you don't want to have happen with the other side is you will lose some credibility as if you knew about insurance, you know, you're at the mediation, and even though it's private, and all throughout the mediation as offers are going back and forth, I've got to make a phone call. I got to keep making phone calls. I mean, it's what, you may need to make a phone call here and there if the adjuster's not there. But if the other side sometimes finds out there, there, there wasn't insurance and you don't have authority and it's very easy to say no by phone for an adjuster as opposed to being in person, you're not going to look good and your credibility in litigating further if the matter doesn't resolve with the other side is going to go down because they're going to say, wait, there was insurance here. You know, you didn't tell me. I may have excused the adjuster. I may have said it's okay by phone, but now we're getting into insurance dollars and you don't have authority to do this. Your insurer doesn't have authority to do this. It becomes messy. I don't know if Kathy, you want to talk about something. Um, a couple of things about mediation. Um, each side will provide a mediation memo. Please give that to us ahead of time so we can see what you're saying. So we're all on the same page with the facts because you may have all of the facts in there. You may leave some of the facts out of there. The other thing is, is when we go to mediation, as Adam said, there's levels of authority. We have to do reports for all of those levels. It takes me 60 days to get money above my authority unless it's an emergency. And as a seasoned claims person, you don't want anything to be an emergency where you're asking for $2 million because that, that says that, you know, you really haven't been kept abreast of what's going on um, in the case. So that's my media. I don't, I like to go to mediations face to face. I've been doing them Zoom. I can't stand it for many different reasons because body language and content and I try to bond with the plaintiffs so they know that I'm just not the big bad insurance company, that I'm really a person and I've lived with this case for five years. So like I get it. And I really do think when the adjuster bonds with with the um, the claimant, they kind of get it and take it into a different different realm. But that's me. I'll go back to you. I, I prefer to have the adjuster there, especially if it's a difficult plaintiff or a difficult plaintiff's attorney. There's something quirky about the case. Um, I, I think you have to have the decision maker there in federal court, as Adam pointed to. You you actually must because it's an, it's, it's uh, oftentimes ordered. Uh, but I just think it's it's you got to think about it if nothing else and have a sense of would it be helpful for the adjuster to see what I've seen in a deposition? 
because as good as your status or strategy report may be, if it's not a video recorded deposition and you've said this person makes a great impression or they make a terrible impression, uh, it's helpful. It can also apply to your client. You may be reporting to your adjuster saying my, my, the client is just not going to come across well uh, for whatever reason. And when the adjuster gets to spend eight hours in a room with them, they may understand why you think this is a case that has some issues. And um, that's an important thing to get an opportunity uh, to preview what a jury may, may end up seeing. And, and if you, as an associate, get an opportunity, you should see if you can go to a mediation with a seasoned attorney and just sit back and watch. The more you sit back and watch people who are partners, people that are senior associates, people that are seasoned claim reps, you will become part of the thread of how this dynamic works. Because it really, as I say, it is a play or a puzzle and how it all goes together and com is complete is a real learning experience for associates to go and see different people's different styles. As I tell people when they go to my mediation, take everything with a grain of salt because I just go off the wall. Of course, you can at a mediation because none of that is shared with the other side unless you allow that information to be told to the other side. So it's, a, it's an interesting dynamic mediations between who the mediator is, who the adjuster is, and who the defense attorney is that you're present. So take the opportunity to go to those particular things if you can. Sorry, Adam, go ahead. No, that's fine, that's fine, I'll just- about attending the mediation and also I think kind of going back to what the billing guidelines a lot of times insurance companies will only allow one or two attorneys at a meeting uh -oh. she froze. She but if you get permission or if the law firm will let you go without you billing that time you as a I learning experience education. go ahead you froze stephanie too bad. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it was great. Yeah, yeah I'm sure it was awesome. It was very helpful and could have made everyone successful. Billions of dollars. But all in all, I want to say, we've just talked about, as panelists talked about this, the main thing that you can do is think like an adjuster. You're a lawyer and you have a certain responsibility, but if you think, what does the adjuster need? Think about what you would want if you were the adjuster and provide that information. You can't go wrong. It's the lawyers who constantly think law, 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 law. And we're all part of the law, but we all have this tri piece that we have to deal with. So if you think like the adjuster and provide information that you would want to know, you're probably going to be in really good shape. Kathy, and be, on, be honest. That's the other thing. When you say think like an adjuster and Adam, um, I think one thing that's helpful to understand for, for junior lawyers is that your job is to win the case. That's, but some cases you're just not going to win. Some cases you're going to have to bring in for a landing. And the idea for the insurance company is they don't like surprises that are, that are bad, obviously. But, you know, it doesn't do you any good to say, boy, this is a $2 million case. That's, where I'm, that, that's how I'm, I'm evaluating it. And then they get to a mediation and they settle the case for $400,000. You've done a bad job there too, because when, they, when we've used the term reserve the case, 
they're literally taking money out of the money that the insurance company, as, as Stephanie alluded to, can invest elsewhere. And that's what they're doing to make money. It's not just premiums in versus what they pay out. They're taking premiums and investing them. But when they reserve a case properly based on the information you're giving, then they have extra money and they can use it to invest elsewhere. If you've said, this case is devastating, we have all these issues and they reserve it for $2 million and they put aside some amount of that for two years, that's, amount, that's an amount of money that statutorily these insurance carriers cannot invest and make more money on. And so if you settle it for $300,000, you think, great, I got a good result. It's way less than what I thought. I look at it as you've done a bad job evaluating the case for two years. And okay, that's better than losing for $5 million. But frankly, I've always been taught that insurance companies want you to bring the case in for settlement or a, or a verdict, including if you lose, in, in the window that you've advised based on this, uh, this evaluation of liability, defenses, damages, and exposure, you want to bring it in within that window. And if you do that, sometimes you're going to win a case and it's going to come in at zero. That's great. Other times you're going to lose. But if you lose within where you've evaluated the risk, you're still doing your job, uh, even, even if you lose an occasional trial. We actually, so we have about two minutes left. So if anyone else has any questions, feel free to type into the question and answer. We actually have a really good question. It's who decides whether to settle the defendant or the insurance company? That's, I saw that question. That is probably another topic for a whole webinar, but uh, you know, I'll, I'll definitely, Francis, I saw your question. I'll give you an answer. So it, the answer is, unfortunately, it, it depends. And this is where, where Kathy goes, get the policy from the carrier you're working on, okay? Some policies say the insurance company has the sole right to settle the claim. They do not need anybody's consent. They don't need the insured's consent, okay? They have the right. They can do it without letting the insured know, and they can settle the claim. You sometimes see that in auto cases a lot. In my policies, for example, I deal with professional liabilities, it's a little dicier, okay? And I imagine Kathy's probably are as well too. I need the insurer, the insurance carrier needs the insured's consent to settle the case. And there's always a line which consent shall not be unreasonably withheld. And then you get into what that means. But when I go to settle a case, I have to tell the insured, look, okay? We're, even though you may not be paying anything, we are settling this matter and I need your consent to do so. And, you know, many, most of the time the insureds will say, okay, fine, it's time to settle it. Here's my consent. There are times when an insured on principle will say, no, I'm not giving consent. And that's a whole nother topic. And that's a whole nother coverage council, you know, um, hammer clause type webinar we can do. But in, in short, your short answer is it depends on the policy language. And, and either way, we want it in writing, if they're going right. to consent or not consent, because people flip from one time to another, depending on what's happening. Right. So if you know whether the policy is a consent policy or not, that's all you need to know as you get down the line. Um, depends on what state you're in, whether it's consent or not. So. I think that's all of our time. I'd really like to help. Um, thank all the panelists, Kathy, Adam, me, for all the wonderful information. Um, all, most of our, Nate and my information is on the website. If you have other questions or want to follow up, feel free and we can also put you in contact with Kathy. Yeah, please feel free to reach out yeah, about absolutely. anything, you know. Thank you so much for everyone's time.
Thank Thanks, you. everyone. Thank you. Bye. Thank you all.